So I'll be reading to you from a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young church in Thessalonica. Chapter 2 is, uh, if you find the large number 2, that's the chapter heading. And if you drop down to the smaller numbers, uh, you'll see number 13. That's the verse marking. So it'll be in chapter 2, verse 13. I'm just going to read one paragraph there for you. You follow along as I read. This is what Holy Scripture says. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I invite you to take your Bible again and open to the book of 2 Thessalonians. As you do that, please pray with me. Father, we are here this morning to hear from you. We are listening. And so we pray, dear God, that you would speak to us. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, when a person shares some really, really good news, there is a right way to respond and there is a wrong way to respond. Let me give you an example. If a husband comes home from work and his wife shares that she's pregnant with their first child and, and she's, she's sharing this with excitement and tears of joy in her eyes, the wrong response would be to shrug your shoulders and just walk away. Or if a patient is lying sick in bed with a body ravaged and destroyed by cancer, and her doctor walks in and says that the cure for cancer has finally been discovered and says that she can be fully healed. To ignore it and not to care would be the wrong response. There is a right way to respond to good news, and there is a wrong way to respond to good news. This morning, as we look at our passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 to 16, that Pastor Paul read for us, we're going to see how the Thessalonians responded to the good news of the gospel in the right way. And as we do that, it would be important for all of us to examine ourselves and ask the question, have I responded to the gospel in the same way? Now, considering it's been about three months since we were last in 1 Thessalonians, and since there are many new people here, let me give you a brief summary of what we've covered so far in this letter. If we look back in Acts chapter 17, we see the background story to this letter. 
There we're told that Paul and his fellow missionaries, Silas and Timothy, came to the city of Thessalonica to preach the good news of the gospel, and by the grace of God, many were saved. But in response to this, some of the Jews got real upset, and they stirred up an an angry mob that caused a riot in the city. And this mob basically drove Paul and his fellow missionaries out of the city and continued to harass the church. So you can see that persecution was right there in the beginning when the gospel first came to the city and its people. There was active hostility to the preaching of the word of God. And it's in this kind of tumultuous context that many of the Thessalonians first became followers of Jesus. Now you can imagine just how concerned the apostle Paul was for these young Christians Unfortunately, due to a number of different reasons, he's unable to physically make his way back to the city. And so, instead, he sends this letter in order to encourage them and exhort them to endure amidst affliction. Endure amidst affliction. The letter begins in chapter 1 with an encouraging word of gratitude to the Lord. Because even in the midst of severe persecution, Paul has heard the reports that their faith was working. And that their love was laboring. And their hope was persevering. And then in chapter 2 from verses 1 to 12, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of his own evangelistic ministry towards them. And how he preached the gospel with all fearlessness pure motives, sincere heart, godly conduct, and fatherly care. And then what comes next in our passage today, from verses 13 to 16, is another word of gratitude. But this time, he thanks the Lord because the Thessalonians responded to the preaching of the gospel in the right way. What is the right way to respond to the gospel? It's to embrace the gospel as the word of the Lord. Look with me at verse 13. Paul says, and we also thank God constantly for this. What is he thankful for? That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Pause there. I I know the sentence goes on, but I want us to just take, take a moment here and look at what he's saying. First of all, when Paul uses the phrase word of God in this letter, he's talking about the tenets of the gospel, how Jesus is the son of God and how he came into the world and how he lived a perfect life, died on the cross and rose again on the third day. The word of God is the gospel. Understanding that, the big thing that I want you to see here is how there is a difference between receiving the gospel and accepting the gospel receiving and accepting. When they received the gospel from Paul, they went one step further and accepted it. Now, even though there is a lot of overlap between these two words, in this context, Paul is not simply using them interchangeably or synonymously. There is a slight but significant distinction between what he's saying here. Let me give you an example. If I gave you a bag full of chocolate, since you're all nice people, you'll probably take it from me and politely say thank you or something like that. But some of you here would never touch the chocolate because it's just not your thing. You don't, you don't have a sweet tooth. So you might put the bag of chocolates in the cupboard and forget about it. 
or you might just give it to someone else since you don't want it to go to waste. Or some of you might even get home and throw it in the garbage because you don't want anyone else to have sugar and chocolate. But there are some of you, others of you, who would take that bag and dive right into it. I mean, that is your thing. After the gospel, you believe that chocolate is God's greatest gift to humanity. And so you dive right into it. This is what you wanted most of all. So you not only receive the gift bag from me, but you welcome it with joy. You embrace it and you cherish it with every intention of eating it. Do you see the difference? Everyone receives the bag of chocolates, but only some truly accept it. And that was true in Thessalonica when it came to the preaching of the gospel. Again, in Acts chapter 17, we're told that Paul went to the synagogue of the Jews, and in verse 2 it says, As was his custom, on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Okay, so there he is. He's, he's preaching. He's publicly preaching the gospel. Now, in, in one sense, everyone who is there in the synagogue, in the building for those three weeks, received the gospel in the sense that they all heard the gospel. But in the very next verse, in verse 4, it says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Did you catch that? Only some were persuaded, but not all of them. The ones who were persuaded were the ones who received the gospel from Paul and accepted it, believed it, welcomed it, embraced it. You know, as one pastor said, there is the hearing of the ear and then the hearing of the heart. And they are two very different things. So let me ask you this question. In what way have you heard the gospel? In what way are you hearing the gospel? It's not enough to simply be here every Sunday to just hear with your ears the preaching of the gospel from the pulpit. You don't become a Christian by coming to church and passively listening to the preached word. No, as you're hearing the gospel with your ears, you must also hear it with your heart. What I mean is there must be an active decision in your heart to trust in the gospel. Believe that Jesus is the Savior who is able to save you from sin and death through his sacrificial death on the cross. So what about you? Have you done this? Have you embraced the message of the gospel? Have you gone beyond receiving it to accepting it? The gospel isn't some man-made invention this wasn't concocted in the, in the minds of human beings. This gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ came from God himself. And that's what the Thessalonians understood. In verse 13, it goes on and it says, You accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. When Paul was, was, was with them and preaching to them the gospel, they saw and heard a man speaking, but they believed that they were actually hearing a message from God. Paul is making a profound statement here about the spiritual dynamic of preaching. 
he is essentially saying that when the word of God is preached, it is as if God himself were speaking to his people. Now, honestly, I say that with a lot of hesitancy and a lot of fear because I realize how weird that might sound coming from the current preacher's mouth. I also realize that that can be very abused and become harmful to the church, especially if preachers use this kind of authority to manipulate and control people. And so let me just make one thing very clear here. Not all preaching is the word of God. Just because a man claims to preach or just because someone says, I have a message from the Lord, doesn't mean that God is speaking in that very moment. The Bible warns us again and again that there are many false teachers who will come in the name of the Lord preaching what sounds right and good to the ears. That is a repeated warning. And so we need to be careful and we need to be discerning and we need to ask the question, is this man truly declaring the word of the Lord? How can you be sure of this? Well, friends, it's to have your Bible open. And it's to filter every thought and every sermon through the written word of God. The scripture is God's divine word to us. Which means that true biblical preaching isn't coming up to the pulpit and sharing all kinds of man-made opinions and preferences. It is opening the Bible and proclaiming what God has said in his word. Come with me to Acts chapter 17, verse 2 for a moment, and consider this with me. Acts chapter 17, verse 2. This is when he first came to Thessalonica. And I want to ask you this question. When Paul was reasoning with the Thessalonians and preaching the gospel to them, where was he reasoning from? What was the source of his message? If you look in verse 2, it says, He reasoned with them from the scriptures. From the scriptures. Friends, that is true biblical preaching where God actually speaks to his people because scripture is the very word of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And then regarding the written word, the apostle Peter says in in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible may have been written by man, but make no mistake, These are words that were inspired by God. When the Thessalonians heard Paul preach from the scriptures, they embraced it for what it really was, the word of the Lord. And I thank God that this is true of you as well, Grace Fellowship Church. You responded to the gospel preaching in faith. You embraced the gospel as God's divine word. But as I say those things, know know that our boast isn't in the preachers. It's not in the pastors. Our boast isn't even in you, the members. Our boast is in God and God alone. And he deserves all the credit and all the praise because without his grace, this church would not even exist.
Come back with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 again. And look at how verse 13 begins. Who is Paul thanking for the Thessalonians' right response to the gospel? Beginning of verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this. God is the very one who enables his people to respond in faith and believe in the preaching of the gospel. It is all by the grace of God. And so all glory be to him. Paul was very confident that they had genuinely accepted and believed in the gospel because of how the gospel was at work in them. Look again at verse 13 and specifically how it ends. The word of God, which is at work in you believers. He, Paul could see and he, and he was hearing the reports of the evidence of the word working in their lives. The, the word of God was effectual. It made a difference in their lives and was continuing to make a difference. The prophet Isaiah said this long ago as he declared the word of the Lord from Isaiah 55 verse 11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God God's word works. It is effectual. It has a powerful effect. And so if you claim to be a Christian here, but nothing in your life has changed, then you may have heard the gospel, but you may not have accepted it. How can you remain the same when you encounter the living and active word of Almighty God? Your life would never be the same. The word of God works in the hearts of true Christians. For these Thessalonians, Paul saw the fruit of the gospel in many ways, but he emphasizes one particular effect of the gospel. There was one piece of evidence that really stood out to him, and it's that they were persecuted on account of the word of God. And that's point number two. Expect persecution on account of the word of God. Verse 14, it says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Uh, this is pretty interesting here. Paul is saying that they started to imitate other godly Christian churches in the region of Judea. Not, not people, but, but actual churches. A group of people, group of Christians who came together. Now, how exactly did the Thessalonians imitate these other churches? Well, like the Judean churches, the church in Thessalonica was being persecuted for their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, it carries on. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Persecution was evidence of the word of God dwelling within them. This is a great paradox in the Christian faith. To believe in the gospel and embrace it as the word of God means to live a life of persecution in the world. These faithful churches in Judea were undergoing the same kind of persecution. It was persecution that came from the hands of their own people. 
The Thessalonians were persecuted by the Thessalonians, just like the Judeans were persecuted by the Judeans. During the earthly ministry of Christ, he prophesied that this kind of persecution would surely take place. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 16 to 22, Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And then verse 21, brothers will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When you receive Christ, when you become a part of his people, a part of his family, that often results in being cut off and persecuted by the people who were once the closest to you. Many of you know that well from your own personal experience When the Lord saved you and you began a new relationship with him, your relationship with your unbelieving co-workers, friends, and even family changed. I mean, they thought you were once fun and pleasant to be around. But now that you're a Christian, they think you're boring or annoying, and they even go so far as to hate you because you are seeking to be like Christ. Well, brothers and sisters, don't be surprised when the people closest to you turn against you for following Jesus. The Christian life is a life of persecution. You will suffer for the sake of Christ. But you need to always remember that in your suffering, you are never alone. And that's what Paul wanted the Thessalonians to realize as he wrote this part of the letter All of the faithful, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches in Judea were undergoing the same kind of persecution that they were experiencing. In verse 15, Paul elaborates on how the Jews caused affliction, so much affliction, and opposed the gospel. It says in verse 15, Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. Now, we need to be careful here because Paul isn't just bashing on the Jews for the sake of bashing on the Jews. No, no, no. He he is simply stating the facts. The fact is the Jews murdered Jesus and the prophets. They were the ones who arrested Jesus and dragged him into court. They were the ones who, who cried out, crucify him, crucify him, and had him condemned on the cross. Before the time of Jesus in the Old Testament, we read again and again how the prophets of the Lord went to the rebellious Israelites to declare the word of the Lord. But what often happened to these prophets? Many of them were killed by their own people. Many of them were killed by the Jews for declaring God's message of repentance to them. Jews killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. Another fact as well. The Jews drove out Paul, Silas, and Timothy. 
When Paul and his fellow missionaries arrived in Thessalonica and preached the gospel and saw many come to faith in Christ, it says in Acts chapter 17, verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar. And and as a result of this, because of the riot that was caused by these Jews, they escaped to the nearby city in Berea, and they start to preach the gospel there. But then it says in Acts chapter 17, verse 13, when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the city in order to protect him and preserve his life. This wasn't a one-time incident or a one-time occurrence. If we read through the book of Acts, we see that again and again, this was Paul's experience. He was violently driven out by the Jews from city to city. And, and all of this was very displeasing to the Lord. But there's one more thing that Paul says specifically about the Jews. The Jews prevented the preaching of the gospel. Look at the end of verse 15. It says, and displease God. The Jews displease God and oppose all mankind. I mean, whew, that is quite the indictment. Other translations use the word hostile. The CSB translates this verse, the Jews are hostile toward everyone. I mean, what, what, what does Paul mean by that? How can they be opposed and hostile to all humanity? It's not like they took up arms and waged a vicious war against everyone else in the world. Well, they may not have opposed all mankind directly, but they did oppose all mankind indirectly. Here's how, verse 16. By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. See that? The Jews opposed all mankind because they did all that they could to prevent the preaching of the gospel, which is God's power for salvation. I mean, just imagine that you were the one who discovered the cure for cancer. I mean, this is what the world has been waiting for 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 centuries. And now you want to go and share it with everyone because cancer is destroying lives and families all around the world. But then imagine a group of people actively getting in your way, harassing you, abusing you, and even attacking you in order to stop you from distributing this cure. I mean, there's no question that they're directly opposing you, but in one sense, you could say that they are also indirectly opposing the whole world because they are preventing this life-saving cure from going out and saving the millions and millions of people who are dying from cancer. That's kind of like what the Jews here, Jews were doing here, but worse. They weren't preventing the cure for cancer, but the cure for sin. They weren't obstructing the way to life, but the way to eternal life. They hindered the spread of the gospel and therefore the work of salvation. Just to be clear, this is the wrong way to respond to the gospel. And Paul writes in this kind of denunciating way in order to make that clear. 
But again, his main point here is to show the, Thess- the, 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 the Thessalonians that they were not alone in their afflictions. In suffering persecution at the hands of their own people, they became imitators of those faithful Christians who have gone before them. The the Judean churches suffered because of the word of God. The apostle Paul and all the other apostles suffered because of the word of God. The prophets of old suffered because of the word of God. And even Jesus himself suffered because he is the word of God. My dear brothers and sisters, don't be surprised when fiery trials come your way. Expect them. Anticipate them. Be prepared to stand firm relying on the Lord because to be a Christian means to follow a pattern of suffering. So when you suffer for the sake of the gospel, when you face hostility and and when you lose friends and, and jobs and promotions and worldly benefits, just remember that you are following in the footsteps of others. And maybe more than that, just remember that Jesus himself walked that same path. Suffering for the sake of the gospel is hard. It can feel so lonely and isolating. But listen, Jesus knows that suffering well. Because he himself suffered and died on the cross. And he still bears the nail-pierced scars on his hands and on his feet. And so you don't need to be uh, alone and you don't need to feel like you're, you're isolated or your experience of suffering is unique because Jesus knows exactly how that feels and he is able to sympathize with you. And so remember Christ when you are suffering for his name. Remember him and run to him and call this to mind as well, as well that one day King Jesus will come to judge the world in righteousness and he will vindicate his people. Look at how verse 16 ends. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. He's talking about the Jews and he says, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Now this can be quite a confusing verse But if we look back to Genesis chapter 15, we get a better understanding of what Paul is saying here. In Genesis chapter 15, God tells Abraham that his descendants, the Israelites, will live and suffer in a foreign land that is not their own, and they won't return until their, uh, they won't return to their own land until 400 years. And one of the reasons why that would happen is stated in verse 16. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, it says, For the iniquity of the Amorites, or the Egyptians, is not yet complete. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And that's why your descendants, the Israelites, are going to stay in the land of the Amorites and suffer there for 400 years. In other words, the Egyptians had to reach a certain amount of sins that the Lord considered complete before he would judge them in his wrath and deliver his people. So when Paul talks about the Jews filling up the measure of their sin, 
it's basically the same thing as the Egyptians completing their iniquity. This is actually a common biblical idea. And this is seen in other points in the Bible, and they tend to be critical turning points in redemptive history. Once 400 years was passed and the Egyptians completed their sins, God destroyed them through supernatural events and he saved the people of Israel. And if you read through the Old Testament, you know that this is a critical point in the Old Testament. The authors tend to go back to the Exodus again and again and again. And so when we come back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul is saying that what all the Jews did in, in killing Jesus and the prophets, in driving out the apostles, displeasing God and hindering the spread of the gospel, actually served to fill up or complete their sins. And the critical turning point here would be that the gospel was now going out to the Gentile world because the Jews mainly rejected it. And because they have rejected and opposed the gospel, verse 16 ends like this, but wrath has come upon them at last. What's interesting here is that Paul seems to be talking about the wrath of God in the past tense, as, as if the wrath of God already came upon the Jews. But if we look at chapter 1, verse 10, he talks about the wrath of God as something coming in the future. In chapter 1, verse 10, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, there are many different interpretations to the exact details of this verse. Did, did wrath come before? Is, is wrath currently upon them? Is wrath something that will come upon them in the future? I mean, there, there, there are many good interpretations about that. But for our purposes today, what I simply want you to see is the clear connection between sin and the wrath of God. What we know for sure is that God's wrath will be unleashed on all those who continue to walk in sin, who continue to ignore and oppose Jesus, and on all those who continue to live a life that is displeasing to the Lord. God is just. He is a righteous God, and therefore he will punish sin and evil in his justice. But there is a way to escape the wrath of God. And the way is only found in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the eternal life-giving cure to our cancerous sins. And he is able to save us and he is able to deliver us from the wrath to come. And so if you turn away from your sins and you embrace the good news of the gospel like the Thessalonians did, believing that he took all of your sins and he died on the cross in your place, if you believe in that truth and you believe that he rose again from the dead, then you will be saved. You know, without Jesus, you may never suffer in this world. As a matter of fact, you may prosper you may flourish, you may have a good and exciting life without Jesus, but listen, there will come a day where you will face the full and terrifying wrath of God. With Jesus, you will suffer on account of the word of God. You will suffer, but know that it is only for a moment. It is a speck 
in light of all eternity. Your suffering and your afflictions and and your persecution will come to an end. And, and, And Jesus Christ, who has suffered the wrath of God in your place, will lead you through judgment and lead you into glory and everlasting life. So friends, you count the cost. Which is better? To not suffer here in this world now and then eventually face the wrath of God or to suffer for a little while and then have eternal life with Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel that Jesus came and he died on the cross for sinners and he rose again. And this morning, I don't want you to just hear the gospel from me. I want you to hear it from others who have been saved by the grace of God and who personally know the hope that I'm talking about. This morning, we get to hear again the testimonies of two more people who have put their trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in just a moment, they're going to share their testimony of how the Lord saved them and how he delivered them from the wrath to come. And as a public declaration of their faith in Christ, they're going to be baptized here today. Earlier in the sermon, I talked about the Egyptians completing their iniquity and the wrath of God coming upon them. In that story, God unleashed his wrath on the Egyptians by drowning them in the Red Sea. But there's something else that happened in that story. God's wrath eventually buried the Egyptians at the bottom of the sea, but his grace led the people of Israel safely through the waters of judgment. And baptism is meant to symbolize that truth. When these two individuals go fully under the water and come up again, it symbolizes that they have safely passed through the waters of God's judgment because they have found their ultimate refuge in Jesus Christ.